0: Hello, and welcome to the Stafford Boxing Report. I am Sheila Stafford, the complete voice for the future of women in the global boxing industry as boxers and businesswomen. Stafford Boxing, the making of champions. Please like, subscribe, share, and leave a comment. I have a special guest today. He is one of the most patient men that I know, but I would like to add on, my husband is extremely patient as well. I need everyone to stand up and give an applause for a man that is the heartbeat in the boxing industry. Mr. J. Russell Pelt is an American boxing promoter, a member of the International Boxing Hall of Fame, And the world, and the Jewish uh, Boxing Hall of Fame. If I'm correct, but if I'm not, he will definitely let us know. I have the utmost respect for for Russell. So everybody, please welcome my special, special guest, Russell.
1: It's great to be here, Sheila.
0: Oh, it is great to see you.
1: It's the Philadelphia Jewish Sports Hall of Fame.
0: Gotcha. Thank you for that correction. Okay. First, I want to let everybody know that how we first connected, I was attending Georgia State University, and I was taking a journalism class. I had never taken that type of class before, and I reached out to Russell through an email because I had to do a report on, on someone. And I emailed you with some, I emailed you, I introduced myself first, and then asked if you would answer some questions for me. And when I tell you, you did not even hesitate, not one little bit, I was so, I was shocked and I was so grateful. So my question to you is, what made you do that for me?
1: Uh, Well, why wouldn't I? It would only be the courteous, the right thing to do. I wouldn't want to ignore you. And boxing needs as many fans and new faces as possible.
0: See, and that's what I like, too, because a lot of times people get to a certain place in their life, another level, And a lot of times people forget what they've been through and that they as well had to start from somewhere. And they just don't do it. And that really meant a lot to me. And to let you know, I got an A on that paper.
1: That's good. But Sheila, I only did what any um, real person would do. Someone told me years ago, "You you don't applaud a fish for swimming. (laughs)
0: It's what they do (laughs) You're absolutely right And also when I was researching on you during that time I knew that you were a man of character, integrity, and honesty And I want to start off by asking you about the book that you have Can you tell our viewers the name of that book that you have?
1: It's called $50, uh, I'm sorry, it's called $30 and a Cut-Eye, and it's about my half century as a boxing promoter.
0: What are the key takeaways that someone like me and whomever else will read your book, what are the key takeaways that we should get out of from your book?
1: Well, it's more about, it's not all about, what went on inside the ring it's it's how we got there how fights were made the good things i did the things i did that weren't so good the fighters that thanked me the fighters that were not happy with me there's i i am a hoarder and a collector and i saved i have a file for every fight i ever promoted going back to 1969 every contract every poster every program every profit and loss statement. And I, I think the main reason I wrote the book is that you know, I was a journalist in another time. And in those days, if, you wanted, if a reader wanted to critique or get their own information published, they had to write a letter to the editor. And if a newspaper got 100 letters a week, maybe two would be printed. In the days of the internet, Anybody can write anything. And I, I was so aggravated over recent years by a lot of the things that I read on the Internet, which is the misinformation highway, that I wanted to set the record <laughs> straight. So I've, I've gotten as much satisfaction out of writing my book as I have of any fight I ever promoted or any award I ever received.
0: That's amazing. So we're going to go back a little bit. Was it 12 years old? You were 12 years old when you made the decision that this is what you wanted to do?
1: Well, I was 12 years old when I saw my first boxing match on television. Gene Fulmer was fighting Carmen Basilio for a piece of the world middleweight title that had been stripped from Sugar Ray Robinson. This was in the summer of 1959. And later that year, I bought, I went into a neighborhood bookstore and bought a book, picture book back then. Today it's a coffee table book called Nat Fleischer's Pictorial History of Boxing. And I devoured the book and I kept watching the fights Wednesday nights from Chicago, Friday nights mostly from Madison Square Garden. And as a present for my 14th birthday, which was December of 1960, I, my dad took me to my first live fight at Convention Hall in West Philly. And as I put in the book, when I walked into the Convention Hall, and I saw the empty ring with the cigar and the cigarette smoke above it, and... I knew, I said, this is going to be part of my life. You have to understand that I was raised on the main line, which is an affluent suburb outside Philadelphia. And until I got to high school, the only Black people I'd ever come in contact with, Black or Hispanic, were the people who either cleaned our home or a couple mechanics who worked for my dad in the plumbing business, and if there were five thousand people in Convention Hall that night, I'd say maybe ten percent were Hispanic, forty percent were black, and I I um, I loved it. It was a whole new world for me. In high school, in my graduating class at Lower Marion, the same high school that Kobe Bryant went to. There were 459 kids in the class. 19 were black. And I don't know. I, I, it was just a world that I'd never experienced before. And, and I loved it. I thought at 14, going to the fights with my dad, And wearing a tie and jacket, which is what everybody did in those days, if you sat ringside, I thought I was the coolest kid on the block.
0: (laughs) I would have thought the same thing, too. (laughs) So I have some viewers that are not really familiar with boxing, but they've been watching the Stafford Boxing Report. So they've been learning a few things. Now, you you are a promoter, can you please tell our viewers the responsibilities that you had on your back to make sure that the event went by smoothly?
1: The best line I ever heard when a judge in a trial asked Bob Arum one day, what does a promoter do? He had the best line. He said, we start fights that other people finish. Hmm. But the, the promoter's responsible for for matching, you know, for, for making a, f- a competitive fight that will attract customers, puts on five or six preliminary fights, rents the arena in the days before casinos, um, hires the ushers, the security, the liability insurance, the ambulance, the ticket sellers, the ticket takers, all those, does the marketing, the public relations, and prices that fight accordingly so that you hope enough people will show up to turn a profit. And you could do this back then in 1969 and through the 70s. You could make money without television because boxing was still a major sport. And I don't want to come off as a downer or a hater because nobody loves boxing more than I do. But it's it's so hard today for someone to get into the business because television runs the business, and ninety nine percent of the television in the United States is controlled by four people: Bob Aram at ESPN, Al Heyman with Showtime, Eddie Hearn with Matchroom, and to a lesser degree, Oscar De La Hoya with um, with the Zone, also same as Matchroom. So. Let's just take an example. My most current, my, my, the last world champion, and I hate to use that term because there's a world champion on every street corner today, Jason Sosa from Camden. He got to the point where he was about, let's see, 18 wins, one loss, three draws. And I couldn't get him on television because it's a closed shop. So I had to turn over half of my fighter to top rank to get them on television. And that's the problem that independent promoters have today. Sooner or later, unless you're a Sugar Ray Leonard in the old days, or perhaps a Boots Ennis today, you have to turn over half your fighter because you, it's a closed shop. But that's a little off the subject. Promoters, you know, promoters are not the most popular people in the world because they have the reputation uh, and maybe deservedly so, certainly in the old days, of ripping off fighters. No, none more famous than Joe Lewis, who was the franchise in the 40s, and when he was finished, had no money to show for it. But not all promoters are like that. And when you love something the way... I loved boxing. You don't want to do anything like that to hurt it. Doesn't mean I'm perfect. Only Rocky Marciano was perfect. Forget what <laughs> Floyd Mayweather says. But, you know, when you add up the po- positives and the negatives, I think I come out ahead.
0: And you do. I have not heard not one thing said bad about you or negative about you. And I'm glad that you're talking about this because it's an eye opener for me who is coming into the boxing industry, especially being a woman, it makes it so much harder. But I wanna piggyback off of what you said. A lot of times I see that boxers Do not trust the promoters. And I couldn't really wrap my mind around it because I'm saying, okay, here is somebody, a promoter, that has been given an opportunity because they are given opportunity because they can't do anything without a boxer. So why would someone like that take advantage of someone else it's it just does not work for me at all but i want to also go back to what you were saying about it being difficult coming in what type of advice what type of wisdom can you give someone like me and whomever else that wants to enter into the boxing industry from the business side since it's so tricky
1: well, the first thing I say is forget it. Um, if that doesn't dissuade them, it a lot depends on where you're from. In a major city like Philadelphia, where you have to contend with the Flyers, the Sixers, the Phillies, the Eagles, and college basketball for the entertainment dollar, it's 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 today it's it's virtually impossible. Um, See, there's a difference today between a promoter and a man with a promoter's license. A lot of fights, a lot of shows today at the what they call the club level, which is the misnomer anyway, are funded by managers. In other words, a guy will call up a promoter and can you put my fighter on the card? And the promoter will say, yeah, you pay your fighter, you pay the opponent, you pay the travel hotel meal. I mean, this is this is foreign to me. That's not promoting the manager. And in fact, there's whole shows sometimes, Sheila, where they're funded by the the managers. And for every Devin Haney that makes it that way, where they sent them here and there and bought fights for him, for every fighter that makes it that way, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of managers who go broke, try, you know, because... To pay today for a four-round fight in a place like Philadelphia is going to cost the manager between four and five thousand dollars all in, and if you keep doing that and you keep adding up, and before you know it, you're fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars in the hole. Your fighter is going to have to be a TV star before you can even think of breaking even, and I know I know managers who are hundreds of thousands of dollars in the hole. So my advice to somebody today to get into the business would be try to get a job with top rank golden boy or Heyman. Otherwise, I think you could be discouraged to the point where you you would bail out. You would bail out. Um, If you're going to be A promoter, a promoter. The only advice I do give to people who say, no, I'm going to do it is make good fights. See, I've been criticized over the years for promoting for the fans rather than promoting for the fighters. You know, if if I wanted to promote fighters, I'd be a manager. But when people are paying now $10, $12, $15 to go to the movies and complaining about it, and you're charging 175 hundred seventy-five fifty $50 for people to go to non-televised fights. You don't want to see the guy in the red corner winning every, every fight. You don't want to see what I call cowboys and Indians. Although you can't call them Indians anymore because you right. get in trouble. But you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Cops and robbers. You want if I'm spending $100 to go see a fight card, I want to see some competitive fights. I don't want to see the promoter's fighter winning every fight on the card. You know, it's, it's, I don't understand. Well, I do understand because the managers are footing the bill. But to become an independent promoter today in a major city like Philadelphia, New York, Chicago, L.A., Las Vegas, it, it's can't, it can't be done. Can't be done.
0: Gotcha. Do you? So apparently, really, from what you're saying, boxing really hasn't changed that much for the best, except for maybe with technology and the like I always say, technology and and the Internet of things. But I guess the middle, the base, the foundation, it's pretty much still the same.
1: Well, I was saying to someone the other day, you know, I go on Twitter, I go on Facebook, and I read all these boxing comments, hundreds of them. And I say to myself, well, wow, there's a lot of people here that are interested in boxing. And then I realize that most of my friends and Twitter people are boxing people. They're not. In other words, when I was a kid going to see the Philadelphia Eagles play at Franklin Field in the early 60s, everybody knew Floyd Patterson was the heavyweight champion of the world. Everybody knew that Emil Griffith was the welterweight champion of the world. But if you go to an Eagles game today and there are 60,000 people in the state, of, I don't care if it's the Eagles, the New England Patriots, you know, the Las Vegas Raiders, whoever. I don't think there's a handful of people who could tell you who the lightweight champion of the world is. And I'm not sure I can, and I'm a historian. Uh, I I think the biggest problem with boxing is what hurt more than anything was the influx of the alphabet groups. And the fact that when I started, there were eight divisions and eight world champions and we knew them all. I, I mean, it's just outrageous what's going on. Here's the, my best example. The recent NBA playoffs. Mm-hmm. Suppose there were no playoffs. Suppose at the end of the season, the six or eight division winners didn't play each other and they'd all walk around saying, we're, the Celtics would say, we're, we're world champs. Or the, um, whoever else was in it. The Toronto Raptors would say, we're world champs. How would you know? How, who would you know? That's what boxing has become that's what it became i mean we have let's see we have five weight classes between 106 and 115 i mean come on that's the why don't we just have a weight class for every pound on the scale all it means is more sanction fees for the alphabet groups so how could, how could how could anybody follow that who goes to Celtics games, Knicks games, Rangers games, Warriors games. How can you follow that?
0: Yeah, I was looking, and it is a lot of weight classes. (laughs) I have um, a question from Vinyl Oil B. I hope I pronounced that right. She said, hey, guys, what's one of your best memories of an experience in your career that we may not know about? That's to you, Russell.
1: One of the best experiences of my career. I, you know, listen, the book is full of a thousand stories. Okay, so I'll just pick this one out. Okay, we had a fight. We had a fight at the Spectrum in 1973. Benny Briscoe was fighting a guy from Nebraska named Art Hernandez for the North American Boxing Federation um, middleweight title, and the there was a fighter on the undercard named Mike Everett, whose brother Tyrone Everett was a terrific fighter, got hosed in a world title fight, later shot and killed by his girlfriend as he was preparing for the rematch. But anyway, Mike was fighting a six rounder on the card and we got to the way in those days you wait in the morning of the fight. So his opponent didn't show. And you hate to disappoint a fighter who's been training for weeks. And in those days, you didn't have all the medicals, and the commissioners didn't act like matchmakers. So there was a manager in town from Cleveland who had a flyweight on the card, and he made a call back home to Cleveland from the way, and this is like 11 in the morning, and he calls a kid named Willie Williams, wonderful Willie Williams, who at the time had a record of about 10 wins and 30 losses. Okay, so he calls him on the phone. Willie, can you get on a plane at two o'clock and fly to Philly? Sure. Fighters did this in those days without holding you up for a king's ransom. So we we buy Willie a plane ticket to fly in. And I'm at my desk at the Spectrum around six o'clock, 630, because we we were sending a guy to the airport to pick him up. And Willie calls. I said, are you at the airport? He said, no. He's flying now from Cleveland to Philly. He says, I'm in Baltimore. I said, how did you get to now? I'm calm now, but I was (laughs) screaming then. I said, how'd you get to Baltimore? Let's see, 73. So I was 26 years old. He said, the plane stopped in Philly on its way to Baltimore, and he fell asleep. When a plane was supposed to, he was supposed to get out in Philly. By the time he woke up, he was in Baltimore. Now, Baltimore is what, like 90 miles from Philly, something like that. I said, you get in a cab, and I don't care what it costs. I'll pay for it, and you get here. And he did it. He got in a cab, and we only had five fights on the card, and Briscoe's ready to come out for the main event, okay? Mm -hmm. I'm down at ringside, and one of the security men says, there's this young kid banging on the door of the spectrum, claiming he's fighting tonight. I said, go let him in. So I ran outside. It was an $80 cab bill, which today is about $600. And we we sent him down to the dressing room. And I'd like to tell you a Hollywood ending that he won the fight, but he didn't. He got got stopped. We made it after the main event. But Mike Everett got the fight that night. And that's the story I'm telling you now. Wonderful Willie Williams wound up with a record of about 10 wins and 40 losses. But he was one of those guys that you needed. You needed guys like that to save the show and keep the other kid fighting. And those fighters, to me, are just as important as the guys that headline under the bright lights of Madison Square Garden and Las Vegas. As long as nobody gets hurt,
0: facts another question also, how do you feel about what Eddie Hearn said about being blocked by u s promoters
1: well, I don't know how he's been blocked i'm I'm not the president of the Eddie Hearn fan Club um I don't think he's been blocked. Eddie Hearn had, was getting a hundred and twenty-five million dollars a year from the Zone in the first two or three years. I mean, do I have I seen the contract? No, I have enough people that I know. And now he's getting maybe eighty-five or ninety. Can you imagine the fights that I could make with eighty-five to a hundred million dollars a year? I, I mean, it's see some of these. Big-time promoters, they don't want to be the best promoter in the business. They want to be the only promoter in the business. I mean, we're not getting value for the money that ESPN and DAZN are hemorrhaging, and they are hemorrhaging money, on boxing. I mean, the purses that are—and listen, I know, I know it's a tough sport. Nobody knows how tough it is. When you're in that gym sparring three, four times a week, and you're getting hit in the face 30, 40 minutes every week, I get it that, that fighters should be paid, but it's not, it's not reflected in attendance. Paid attendance, not discounted attendance, not comps. It's not reflected in paid attendance, and it's not reflected in TV ratings, okay? So when you pay a $3,000 fighter fifteen thousand dollars like an Eddie Hearn or a Bob Arum or an Al Heyman can and then he of course he gets his head handed to him and then you want to bring him back on your show and pay him what the three thousand well come on I just got fifteen 000. I said yeah and you got your head handed to you. But it, but so that hurts that has hurt the independent promoters more than anything. And sooner or later and I hate to use this term, the B-side for the opponents, you're going to run out of them because they're either going to rack up so many losses that commissions aren't going to approve them or they're going to get discouraged. There, there should be a, a, a platform, for, and that's what we try to do. I'm advising people now. If a kid's got four wins and six losses, match him with a kid who's got three wins and five losses. Let them have their own careers without feeding them. Sure, they're not going to make as much money, but without without feeding them to the undefeated kids in the Olympic stars. As far as Eddie Hearn's concerned, I have no sympathy, none whatsoever. Because give me a hundred million a year and I'll give you the best fights you've ever seen. See, it's like a school teacher, any school teacher can pass a kid Who's got an IQ out the window or is a Mensa kid. Any school teacher can do that. But you get a kid who's learning disabled or dyslexic, and you get that kid from third grade to fourth grade, then you're a teacher. It's the same way with promoting. You give me a million dollars, I'll give you the best fight you ever saw. But if you give me $8,000 to put on a main event and I can give you the best fight you ever saw, then you're a promoter.
0: And I believe that too. I'm just having questions coming in, Russell. Daryl Cobb. Hey, all. Question for Russell. How do you build a fighter without overly protecting a fighter from tough challenges (laughs) Challenges?
1: <laughs> I'm not in the protection business because I came up at a time when only the best survived. You know, it's like today. When I was a kid, the best players played on the team. Okay. And if you came in first, second, or third in track, you got a ribbon. The seventh place kid didn't get a ribbon. You know, that's how I grew up. Today, it's different. Today, you know, they give out trophies for participation in a sport. Um, but, the best, but the best thing to do to answer Daryl's question is when you're building a kid up, if you're trying, keep them away from punchers. Because if you make one mistake with a puncher, the fight's over. If you make a mistake with a boxer, you've still got the rest of the fight to try and turn it around. But there's such an emphasis today that Floyd has put on being undefeated that, I mean, how many undefeated fighters are in the Hall of Fame? Calzacki, Marciano, Floyd. I'm not sure if Ricardo Lopez was undefeated or not. He might have been the flyweight. There were, in 1961, I looked at that old Ring magazine a few years ago. Eight weight divisions, eight champions plus one. One title was split, 89 fighters. Three of them were undefeated, 1961. Three out of 89 were undefeated. I I compared that to the WBC rankings a couple of years ago. I just took the same eight weight classes, 88 fighters. 31 were undefeated. 31 all that tells you is nobody's fighting anybody so are there undefeated fighters that can fight yeah but not not in not in uh, not in the ratio of how many there are i mean that's what i have against showbox they only want to show fighters that are either undefeated or have one loss and my biggest um Monument to that is Gabe Rosado, who I used to manage and promote. Gabe Rosado has, what, 14 losses and 28 wins, but he's, never in a, he's rarely in a bad fight, and, he's, and he was making hundreds of thousands of dollars. But unfortunately, casinos and network TV, they don't want the best fighters. They want the fighters with the best records, and I'm old school. Sooner or later, a fighter has to stand up. And you don't want to build a kid up to twenty and o and invest all that time and money and spots on shows and find out in his twenty first fight he can't fight. Better to find out early. I'll give you a good example. I manage a kid named Shenard Bunch. He's got about nineteen wins um, So welterweight. he's been on show. he's been on showbox once. He got a draw with a guy named. Uh, um, Boca Chica. He should he won the fight, but they called it a draw. Anyway, when he was 2-0, and, and everybody was, you know, his his, par, his promoter was saying this kid's a killer. We were fighting on a top rank show, and they offered us a kid named Paul Kroll, who was a hot shot amateur. And I believe, I don't know if Paul's still undefeated, but I really didn't want him to fight Paul Kroll because it was a tough fight for his third fight his first six-rounder because he scored a one-round knockout and a two-round knockout in his first two fights. But I said, you know what? If we put him in with another, I don't want to use the word stiff, but you know what I mean, an easy fight, and he knocks the guy out in one round, I'm not going to know anything. I'm not going to know if he can fight. So let's fight Kroll, and we'll see what happens. And it was a terrific fight. Kroll won the decision four rounds to two, but I knew my kid could fight. And that's when I got involved with him afterward because that fight showed me same thing happened years ago. When I discovered Prince Charles Williams, I was promoting Marvin Johnson at the time, the first three time world light heavyweight champion. And we were fighting Prince Charles Williams in in, in Indianapolis who was 12 and three and going nowhere. And Marvin won a decision, but it wasn't an easy fight. And when the fight was over, Prince Charles was in his corner with a real disgusted look on his face. And I said to myself as I was heading to the dressing room, I said, look at this guy. <clears throat> he, think- he thought he could actually come in here and beat Marvin Johnson. I said, who is? But it's the mental aspect. And you have to appreciate the mental aspect of a guy who once, and we signed Prince Charles after that, he didn't lose a fight for a decade and he won the IBF world title. So there's a lot of things that go, there's a lot of guys with ability, but the mental aspect of boxing is so important.
0: And you're right. And that's why I like the philosophies from Cus Damato, Amado, because that's what he said. It's the mental that's the majority of when it comes to boxing and really just anything. And he would always talk to the kids first to see where they were at before he would even move any further along with it. And I do agree with you with that because you have to be strong mentally. And the reason why I say that is because. Sometimes as we're all familiar with, things are not always gonna go as planned. They're not gonna go right. You can work your butt off and be doing the right thing. And at the same time, you still have to keep on going and you still have to think of positivity. You gotta think positive. You have to speak that positivity out in the atmosphere because if you just let it, everything just collapse and you don't speak the right words, then you're really not gonna get anywhere pretty much. So I agree with you with that. Give us some gold nuggets that you can give to to me, to our viewers, where they can turn those gold nuggets into a great gold mine.
1: Never judge a fighter off one fight. I made that mistake many times, and it cost me Marvin Hagler, Buster Douglas, Antonio Tarver. You, you have to see a fighter several times before you can judge how good he is. Number two, always make good fights. Because if you go down, if you don't make it, nobody can say you didn't make it because you made bad fights. You don't ever wanna to have to have a show where you stand in the back because you're embarrassed about a fight that you've just put in the ring. You know, I had that experience a few times and it's not a good one. You, the best feeling for a promoter outside of a... You don't want a big crowd and a terrible show because you want the people to come back. The best feeling for any promoter is when the fight is over It gets a standing ovation. You want to make good fights. I don't care what anybody says. Um, If we had better fights in boxing and less build-up fights, boxing would be what it was in the 20th century. We had more fights that were 6'5 pick'em fights. This whole thing with Spence and Crawford is outrageous. It's outrageous. And they're both to blame. If Spence wanted to fight Crawford, he would have told Al Heyman, make the effing fight. Same thing with Crawford. There's no excuse. This never used to happen. So now when there's a good fight on TV, people say, wow, boxing's back, it's a great fight. Let me tell you something, Sheila. We had these great fights every Friday night when I was a kid. Every Friday night from Madison Square Garden, every Wednesday night from Chicago Stadium. These were these were the kind of fights we had. Today if you have one, first of all they put it on pay-per-view and I refuse to pay for a fight. I don't pay for the World Series. I don't pay for the Super Bowl. I don't pay for the NBA playoffs. Why would I pay for Andy Ruiz against who's he fighting um, It's not Chris Ariola. He's he's fighting I can't remember. Anyway, it's on pay-per-view. Maybe he's fighting Luis Ortiz coming up. Come on, this is what's kill This hurts the business because ninety million people in the United States saw Ali Spinks on ABC. So today, when a million people watch a pay-per-view fight, promoters go through the roof. It, pay-per-view is great for the promoter and it's great for the fighters. It's terrible for the future of the business because you have fewer eyeballs watching it. So Leonard at Hearns won. No, Robinson Lamada, the title fight in 1951, 20% of the households in America with television saw that fight. So the more you put fights on pay-per-view, the fewer people watch them, but You have to love boxing. You can't, you have to hang in there. I mean, if you read the book and read the money that we lost for years, just hanging in there, you just have to, you have to just, you have to be dedicated. You have to love it. I'm not the greatest businessman in the world, but when you love something, it's always on your mind and you think about it. What fight can I make? This fight leads to that fight. I mean, I promoted shows because I wanted to see a certain fight, even though I may have overpaid for them. You have to, to survive in boxing today, you have to love, you really have to love it. And you have to do it the right way. And paid fights by managers is not the right way. I don't care. If that's the best we can do, then we're gonna keep going down that slippery slope. We're on. And people can call me a hater for all they want. And I understand it because people who are making their money in boxing don't want to hear negative things like me. That's why Teddy Atlas is no longer on ESPN. Not because he couldn't tell a jab from a hook. He was as good an analyst as we ever had. And he wasn't perfect like the rest of us. But he brought a different dimension. And people don't like negativity. They don't want to hear it.
0: I got you, you gave us, you put us up on some game. I really do appreciate it. I know our viewers really do appreciate it. I wanna thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to come and speak with me. It's very much appreciated. And everyone, I would like to thank you for watching and for those that are gonna be watching later. Don't forget, you can also listen to it on audio, Spotify, and Podbeam, and it is streamed live on some of the social media platforms like LinkedIn, YouTube, and Facebook, and others. So everyone, we are going to get ready to go. Make sure you like, share, and subscribe. Also, check out the Stafford Boxing YouTube channel. Please like, share, and subscribe. And my husband, Furcon Stafford, a.k.a. Stafford, will be joining us next week, and he is the co-host from this point on. Yay! Thank you. So Stafford Boxing, the making of champions.
1: Thank you.